The scripture reading from today is taken from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you read? Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come to you and we, uh, we come both needy and rejoicing. Lord, we know that we have a good shepherd and we have no lack. Lord, we know that you are near to us. You are in us and with us. Lord, that you help us. We pray that you would help us now, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak to our hearts, Lord, that you would encourage us. Lord, as we are struggling or wherever we're at this morning, that you would show us Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would see him high and exalted, that your Spirit would uh, encourage us to live for him. Lord, to respond to him in faith, to live the entirety of our lives for his glory. Would you help us now? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning is Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday is the first day of Holy Week, which in the Christian calendar is the week before Easter, and it's the week where, as Christians, we come now to reflect on the last days of Jesus' life and ministry on earth. So we're not in 1 Corinthians uh, from now until Resurrection Sunday. We're just spending our time in Holy Week, spending our time with Jesus, reflecting on his last days. 
Today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first Palm Sunday when Jesus entered into Jerusalem and there were palms in the other accounts. There's not palms in our account, the one that Emelina just read, but you know, that's okay. Um, there's different details included in different gospel authors, but it's Palm Sunday, nevertheless, the Sunday when Jesus enters into Jerusalem as king. And only a short while after that, he will be crucified in Jerusalem. That's what we're going to be looking at together on Good Friday, 10 a.m. at Grace. Note it in your calendars. Uh, come if you are at all able. And then, of course, on Sunday, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and have baptisms afterwards. And as we enter into this week, this holy week together, uh, my prayer for you, my invitation to you is that you'd be intentional about it. That together as a church community, we would take the opportunity to enter into a time of prayer, and reflection, of repentance, of thanksgiving and rejoicing in all that's before us. Because after all, as we look at these texts, what we're going to see is who Jesus actually is. And not only who he is, but then also we have an opportunity to reflect on what that means for our own lives. Who Jesus is, and then if he is all of these things, what does that actually mean for me in my life? I think answering these two questions, who is Jesus and what does he mean for my life, are maybe the, most, the two most important questions that you can ask yourself as a human being. And I think that are worth spending some time asking ourselves again this week. They're weightier questions than we might think. So I know a lot is going on. I know you've probably packed this week full of family gatherings and uh, friends stuff and I don't know what else you have. You know, it's a long weekend after all. Things are coming up. But I want to really impress this on you. This is a time for sober reflection. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What does he mean for us? And I want to invite you to consider that in repentance and thanksgiving and in worship. So we're going to begin this morning this time of Holy Week reflection, looking at Palm Sunday and the text that was just read. But before we begin, I want to catch you up to speed in the book of Matthew a little bit. And in the book of Matthew, these two questions, who is Jesus? And what difference should Jesus make in my life? They're not just my questions. I think they're really the questions that Matthew wants us to be asking as you read his gospel. The questions that Matthew wants us to ask as well. And in his story, Matthew 21 is really the beginning of the end of the story. It's the final movement of the story of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And in this point or up to this point, Matthew has been showing us this Jesus who's been significant and beautiful and compelling in his gentleness, in the way that he's come as a fulfillment of scripture, in his power and his miracles, in his wisdom and his profound teaching just cuts through all the stuff and the fluff and the things that we get in the way of us and our relationship with God. And he's merciful. Throughout the story, children are running to him, recognizing his goodness and his beauty. In these stories, it's the sick who are healed, the sinners who are forgiven, Matthew presents Jesus as a kind of person that whoever would come to him saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. We see Jesus as the one who receives and gives mercy to everyone who comes to him in that way. But Matthew has been showing us up to Matthew 21, a different response to the goodness and the beauty of Jesus as well. 
Because in the book of Matthew, we also see these religious teachers who are offended and threatened by Jesus' goodness and his mercy. And we see throughout the story that, that they really care a lot more about themselves, kind of protecting the status quo, than they actually care about the love and the goodness of God and reflecting the love and the goodness of God in merciful acts towards others and caring for those who are weak and hurting. So they oppose Jesus. And they plot to kill Jesus. And now in Matthew 21, as we get to this final movement of the story, this tension and response to Jesus is ratcheted up to its final conclusion. It's the beginning of the end of the story as it crescendos toward his crucifixion only a few chapters on. There's two points this morning I want us to see as we look at the, uh, the, the Palm Sunday events, the Sundays of Jesus coming as a king. And there are these. I want us to see a couple of things about Jesus as we think about responses to him. Number one, I want us to see that Jesus is a humble king. That Matthew goes out of his way to show us the humility of Jesus in this account. Also, that Jesus is a just and a merciful king. That Matthew shows us the beautiful juxtaposition of perfect justice and mercy in Jesus, the king of kings. So look at our first point and see Jesus enter Jerusalem as the humble king and look at Matthew 21 verses 1 to 6 again with me. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and they did as Jesus had directed them. So what we see in this text is that Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem was carefully planned. And we see in this text that Jesus' plans include a donkey. And for the people of Israel that were immersed in the stories of the Bible, Jesus' entrance on a donkey would have recalled the entrance of another king of Israel. The, the king who really was the king of kings up to the point in time that, that Jesus came, the most famous of the kings of Israel, the one who had led them to the height of their prosperity, both in terms of their, their power, but also in terms of their economy, which is the son of David, King Solomon. Because in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33, when Solomon became king, David had gone out of his way to make sure that Solomon himself rode into Jerusalem, seated on a donkey. So now, hundreds of years later, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, the crowds celebrate him as king. And they cry out, Hosanna to the son of David, because they all are recognizing that this is not empty symbolism. There's something about what's going on here that signals that Jesus is a king. Jesus is the king. They saw in Jesus, the son of David who was promised the son of David, who all of the people of Israel, the Jewish people had been desperately awaiting for, the one that they had all of their hopes and dreams for flourishing life pinned on, the one who God had promised. 
And I want you to stop for a second right now, and I want you to reflect on this, this waiting for a promised king who's going to bring life and flourishing, and I want you to juxtapose that against what's going on in our own world right now. I want you to think about war. I want you to take just a moment to think about what's going on in Ukraine, to think about hardship and the struggles of, of living in a world that's full of oppression. Because it's difficult for us to get what's going on as Jesus enters Jerusalem because we don't understand the oppression that they experienced. You see, for them, oppression was an old story. It was an old story for the Jewish people at the time of Jesus. They were a Roman territory. They were dominated by a foreign military power. They had corrupt leadership that were making alliances with the enemy in order to maintain their rule. They had been this way for over 600 years. First, they'd been exiled by an enemy nation as they were destroyed by Babylon. Then Assyria, then Persia, then Greece, then various other tribes and peoples who have oppressed them as they fought to try to have some flourishing and a sense of their own freedom. And it was a hard, a hard time. And I want you to stop for a moment as well and think about your own hopes and dreams for this country. What hopes and dreams do you have for Canada? Where do you place your hopes for Canada? On who or on whom do you place your hopes for Canada? You know, in the Canadian Constitution, we have enshrined that our laws are for the purpose of peace and for order and for good government. And we want these things. And sometimes... Sometimes we fail to get them. We place our hope in people, political parties, ideologies, or movements to bring us these things that we long for. But the Jewish people, the people at the time of Jesus, they place their hopes for peace in one place. They place their hopes for peace in the arrival of this Jewish Messiah. The king who was promised and who would come, the son of David, who would guide them into the prosperity that was promised to them. And on this first Palm Sunday, King Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. Matthew tells us that Jesus' entrance on a donkey it had a purpose. He tells us what that purpose was right in the text, that it was to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It was to show something about the character and the goodness and the purpose of who this king was and why he was coming. Look at Zechariah's prophecy. Look at the way that he talked to a beleaguered and suffering people hundreds of years ago about what God would do in the future. He said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah's prophecy came at a time when the people were undergoing this horrible oppression. And it speaks of a time when God's justice against his own people for their sin would be ended. 
when no longer they would face the punishment that was theirs because of their sin, but instead that a humble king would be sent, that God would send this humble king to end suffering and to bring peace. And then here is Jesus on that first Palm Sunday in fulfillment of that prophecy, riding on a donkey, entering Jerusalem in remarkable humility. And the humility of Jesus is striking. It's even more striking if you know that, that the events of a king entering into the capital city, it wasn't unusual at the time when Matthew was writing. It was so common in the ancient world to have kings come into their capital cities as the, the conquering or the returning kings that it had its own name. It was called the Perusia. And these kings, whether it was Xerxes or Alexander or Antiochus or any of the Caesars, they would come in riding on horses with armies behind them, with celebrations in the streets. And they do all of this to subdue any thought of rebellion that would be at all amongst the people by the display of their power and their might. We are king in power and in might. But humble Jesus arrives in a donkey. Humble Jesus arrives in a donkey with poor disciples singing his praises. Look at verse 5 again. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. You see, Christ said, when Jesus came to Jerusalem, when he came to Jerusalem as king, he didn't come as a king to conquer us in his power and his might. When Jesus entered Jerusalem and was proclaimed as king, he came as a king who would conquer our hearts by his humility. He came as a king in meekness to win us to his love. And that word humble that's used in this text, that's quoted from that prophecy in Zechariah, is only used four times in the New Testament. And three of them are in Matthew, so it's one of his favorite ways to refer to Jesus. Two times are explicitly about Jesus. In Matthew 5, verse 5, Jesus spoke about all of his disciples saying, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And that word meek is the same word that's used here. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. It's the same word. And lowly and hard, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And in Matthew 21, verse 5, Jesus says, or the, the Matthew says about Jesus, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. See, again and again, Matthew is showing us Jesus and his humility. Jesus on a donkey signifies his humility. He is a meek king, a gentle king, and a humble king. This morning, I'm wondering something about you. I don't know where you're at or how you think about God. But what is it that you think of when you think of God? How do you think about him? How do you think God thinks of you? I think it's pretty common for us in this world as human beings to think of God, an omnipotent God, a powerful God, as somehow being against us. We think of him sometimes as the God of can'ts and don'ts, 
versus the God who is for us for flourishing life. I think we sometimes can even think about him as the God of, of justice who's just there waiting to catch us when we make a mistake, to rip the rug out from underneath our feet, so to speak. That he's an angry God who's just waiting to punish us. But what we see in Jesus isn't that. See, what we see in Jesus is all the power of deity in a breathtaking, a breathtaking display of weakness and humility. We see God himself entering Jerusalem. God himself, who by the end of the week will allow himself to be crucified in order to save us. See, Jesus is beautiful. Jesus is beautiful. There's uh, a way that even those who are not followers of Jesus recognize the beauty that we see in the Savior, in the humility and the meekness of Jesus. My neighbor uh, comes up to me once in a while talking about her soft spot for Jesus. She wants nothing to do with Jesus, but she's got a soft spot for Jesus. And I think it's because she sees in Jesus, what we see in this text, there's, there's a beauty that's in Jesus. It's a high contrast sort of beauty. Right? Like the sunset that's so beautiful in contrast to the darkness of the, of the sky or the sunrise against the darkness of the sky. Not sunsets, it doesn't work. The other way around. And, and there's, there's a, a, a beauty that's seen in, in the contrast of that. Well, I think that's the beauty that we see in Jesus because as God, Jesus is the ruler of all things. In Colossians chapter 1, in verses 16 to 17, we read this. For by Jesus... For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Everything was made for him. Everything belongs to him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And yet with his unlimited power, with his unlimited authority, does Jesus dominate people like a Caesar? Does he come into his capital to crush his enemies underfoot like a Xerxes? Is he unpredictable in his wrath and in his justice? No, he's none of those things. See, Jesus enters Jerusalem powerless. Willingly and unprotestingly, and like the prophet Isaiah says, silently being led to the slaughter. See, he comes to us in meekness as a servant to die. He comes to us, comes to us to in meekness die and by his death to crush forever our enemies, our greatest enemies, the enemies of sin and of Satan and of death. And then three days later to rise victorious over all of them and to give us his resurrection life. He comes to unite us with himself to pour out his Holy Spirit after he ascends to the Father so that we can be reconciled, the veil can be torn, and we can be in relationship forever with God Most High. And as he enters into Jerusalem in his humility, Jesus' retinue are not noble officials, but not the ruling elite. 
but everybody who has seen his beauty and who's been conquered by his mercy. The people that are proclaiming Jesus and rejoicing in him as he arrives, they're the crowds from Galilee. They're not the people of Jerusalem. They're coming along with Jesus because they've received his mercy. People like Matthew, who's writing the gospel of Matthew to us, who was a tax collector, a traitor of his people, hated by his neighbors, but loved by Jesus. People like the blind beggars who just before Matthew 21 begins had cried out for mercy and received their sight and are now following Jesus. People who were hopeless and who had found hope in Jesus. Sinners who had been healed and forgiven and who treasured the love of the Savior they had found, King Jesus. See, Jesus is a king of all kings and he conquers our hearts with his humility. And as he enters Jerusalem, then the crowds are rejoicing with him. Look at verses 7 to 9. They brought the donkey and the colt. They put, uh, they put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You see, putting your clothes under the feet of a king or under the feet of a king's horse, it wasn't some ancient sign of chivalry. Like they didn't want Jesus' donkey's feet to get wet in a puddle. It's not what was going on. It wasn't even like a modern day, you know, air ride suspension, trying to give him a gentler ride across the cobblestones. It wasn't those things. To put your clothes beneath the feet of a king was a signal, a declaration of surrender to the king. It was a declaration of submission to the king of kings. It was a joyful, we place ourselves beneath your rule, Jesus. It was a declaration of Paul saying, for me to live is Christ. The cry that we hear in the New Testament of, for me to live now is Christ and I no longer live for myself, but for Jesus Christ who has loved me. I am his and he is my king. So the crowd submitted themselves to Jesus in joy and they shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Do you know what Hosanna means? Hosanna is a common word. We've sung lots of worship songs with Hosanna, but do we know what it means? Just one of those churchy words, I guess. Nobody knows what it means. Nobody knows what Hosanna means here, so I'll tell you. Hosanna means, oh, oh, except for Irene, I see her. No, it's not. No, no. Hosanna means save us. It means save us. It's a plaintiff, please save us. It's the cry of the exiles in desperation. God, will you please intervene and will you please save us? What's so interesting is that on the lips of these people, as they see Jesus entering into Jerusalem, it's transformed from a cry of desperation into a shout of celebration. Which I think is why we associate it with praise. The Lord has saved us. The Lord is our Savior. Our Deliverer is here. Our Savior has come. 
And the crowds rejoice at the coming of Jesus, the coming of humble Jesus. But not everybody rejoiced. See, Jesus entered Jerusalem with a ragtag group of nobodies who all together celebrated God's deliverance. But they entered the city of the ruling class. They entered the city which was the center of, of Jewish life where the elites were. And that city saw Jesus' claims to king as a threat. Look at verses 10 to 11. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Again, notice the difference. I think we commonly think that it's, it's, it was all Jerusalem that was celebrating Jesus' first arrival. But it wasn't. Just to make the point again. It were the crowds that were coming with him who had been receptive to him in his teaching in Galilee and the surrounding areas. But now he's come to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem isn't neutrally wondering, hey, I wonder who Jesus is. That's not how Matthew wants us to read that text. Hey, I wonder who Jesus is. That word stirred up, it, it's supposed to uh, evoke this, this connotation of mental agitation. See, Jerusalem's disturbed that Jesus has arrived. And why are they disturbed by Jesus? Well, I think they're disturbed for the same reasons that we're disturbed by Jesus today as well. Because Jesus is an unbelievably good king who loves nothing more than to show us his mercy and his grace and kindness to anyone that would come to him to receive it. But he's also an absolute monarch. The Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper once famously wrote, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. You see, Jesus is a king whose claims are absolute. And his rule means that where he is king, we cannot be king. So Christ City, I'm wondering what do you make of Jesus? As you see him as a humble king who has come, what do you make of him? How do you respond to him? Think about your own life. He's a king who demands your obedience. And a king who promises to give you a life that you can't find on your own. So will you surrender to him? Or is there an annex somewhere in your life? You know, an annex, a little small territory held off from the rule of the, of the king or of, of the government? Is there one of those places in your own heart, in your own life, where you're, you're just saying, Jesus, you can come this far, but, but this far only. I don't want you to rule here. But life that is truly life is only ever found, Christ City, by joining with the crowds, by placing the cloaks of our life beneath Jesus' feet, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. See, Palm Sunday, it shows us Jesus entered Jerusalem as a humble king. But in the story of Matthew, the procession doesn't stop at the city gates. Look at our second point, a merciful and just king in verses 12 to 13. Because the story continues. And Jesus entered the temple 
and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. What's important to remember as we read Matthew 21 is that Jesus isn't just a king entering the capital city. He is God incarnate entering his own temple. And as he enters his temple, what he witnesses is not his own mercy, his own love, his own character on display, worshipped and adored and proclaimed. But the selfishness of greedy humanity oppressing the foreigner to their own advantage. So what was going on in the temple was that the, the temple priesthood, the religious authorities, they turned the Gentile courts, the place that God himself had ordained for all the nations to come and to worship him and to know him. They turned it into a place of corrupt commerce, a place where they jack up the prices for trading currency that had to be used to buy and sell sacrifices in the temple. They filled up this placement for prayer with greedy, deceitful business practices. And they've done it to make a profit. This is more heinous if you realize that in the Old Testament, I don't know if you guys have read Leviticus and Deuteronomy lately, and it's not like the most popular books of the Bible, but you should read them. But in those texts again and again and again, what God declares to his people is, you need to have mercy on the foreigners and the sojourners. You need to love and to care for the people that don't have a home. You know why? Because you used to not have a home. And I had mercy on you. But the actions that Jesus sees in the temple are blasphemy against the character of God. See, blasphemy is to attribute something to God that has nothing to do with his character. And that's what's happening. They're showing in their actions things that are diametrically opposed to the character and the goodness of God. See, God's heart overflowed with mercy and love for all those the Jewish people had rejected. Look at Isaiah 56, verse 3 and also 5 to 8. This is where Matthew quotes from this text. Here's the wider context. There the prophet says this, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Jesus is not a God who will allow his people, his people who have received overflowing mercy and grace from him, to live in greed and selfishness towards others. 
So what does Jesus do? He enters his temple. It's a powerful image. And he throws over the tables. Now, I don't think we realize how shocking that is. In John's account, we read that he braided a cord together to make a whip to drive out the money changers to purify his temple. I can think about the contrast and the beauty that is in Jesus, the power, the humility, the justice, and the mercy. Think of Jesus, God made human, whose yoke is easy, whose sinners run to, carefully braiding a whip for the purpose of purifying his temple. Gentle Jesus, who the children ran to, entering the center of Jewish worship and driving out every perversion of God's mercy. You see, he entered his temple and Jesus cleansed it. Why did he do it? He did it to fill it again with the character of God. See, what's so powerful about this passage, it's not just that Jesus is just and righteous, It's the way that that Matthew juxtaposes the justice of Jesus in driving out all this oppression and sinfulness against the sweetness of his mercy. Because you have to imagine, Jesus is coiling up the whip and verse 14 happens. And the blind and the lame come to him in the temple. And he healed them. Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? See, Jesus is God become human. And like God, he's perfectly just and full of mercy. He's the God that that Moses saw on Mount Sinai, who declared the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He's both of those things. In the person of Jesus, It's what we see in his life and Christ's city. As we come to Holy Week, it's what we see in his cross. A God who takes sin, who takes the selfishness and the hatred in the human heart and cares so deeply about it that it must come to an end. It must be punished. And who pours out that punishment on Jesus Christ. We're just, where the judge becomes the judged in order that we could receive his mercy. Like Romans 5 says, that we see the love of God in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We see the justice and the mercy and the love of God meet together in the person of Jesus and chiefly on his cross. And this Jesus, he provokes a powerful response. Look at verse 15 and following. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the wonderful things that he did, when they saw the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Jesus, Jesus, do you hear? Do you hear what they're saying about you? 
Jesus says to them, yes, I do. And haven't you ever read that out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? If you won't praise me, God has ordained these children to praise me. And leaving them, Jesus went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. You know, that word wonderful is a, an interesting one. And so the wonderful things Jesus did, it's a rare word in the New Testament. And it's a word that's full of evocation. It's a word that would bring to mind the wonders of the miracles of God in Scripture. It's a word that would bring to mind the exodus, how the people of Israel had the, the power of God all around them displayed in miracle after miracle as he saved them. But when the chief priest saw the wonders of God incarnate, clearing temple, healing the blind and the lame, and when they heard the song that was sung as Jesus came as king, being sung on the lips of children in the temple, they're indignant. They see the wonder of God in Jesus Christ they don't worship him. They hate him for it. Christy, what do we do with Jesus? At the times when we're angered by his justice. At the times when we're offended by his mercy to sinners that we don't want to have anything to do with, from those that are weak and lowly that we don't want to be close to ourselves. Are we threatened by Jesus' claim as king over every square inch of his creation and over every part of our lives? Or do we know his goodness and his mercy and his humility and welcome him like the children? The Pharisees, they thought of themselves as as people that had a privileged status in relationship with God. And this passage is full of this incredible reversal. It's pregnant with this great reversal because the Pharisees who thought they had the kingdom of God did not have it. But the children, the tax collector like Matthew, the great sinners, the outcasts, theirs was the kingdom. The meek inherit the earth. See, when Jesus was resurrected, it wasn't the Jewish elite who received his kingdom. It were these people. It wasn't the Pharisees, but the crowds who'd hungered and thirsted for the mercy of God and had seen it in Jesus. Theirs is the kingdom. And only a few years after Jesus emptied the temple of its sin, in this account, his own prophecies that came a little later in the book of Matthew, Matthew 24, his prophecies of judgment against that temple are fulfilled. And that temple is destroyed forever. But Jesus had other prophecies as well. The prophecies that were, I am going to build a new temple. I'm going to fill my temple with my own character. And Jesus built his church. He built a church full of people who hungered and thirsted for the mercy of God and received it. 
And he poured out his spirit and said, you are my dwelling place. And my character is now seen in you. You are those over whom I will reign as king forever. You are those my church, the gates of hell, will never prevail against. As you storm the world, held under the power and captivity of Satan and sin and death, with the good news of a king who brings life and light and liberty for all in his kingdom. See, Jesus is king and he's coming again soon and we're all going to see him. And we're all going to worship him. And we're all going to fall on our feet before him, whether willingly or unwillingly. So Christ City, what do we do with Jesus? What are we going to do with Jesus this week? He is king and he is coming again. He's unparalleled in power and he shows himself in meekness. He enters the city powerless to go and die so that we could live. He's perfect in justice. Where's that area of our life that we've annexed from him? We must repent. We must come to him knowing he's perfect in mercy. Overflowing with grace and forgiveness to us as we run to him as his children. And we are his children as we put our faith in Jesus. You know, Matthew chapter 23, at the end of this, this section that we're in, verses 37 to 39, as Jesus approaches his crucifixion, even then he longs for Jerusalem's repentance. We read in that passage, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What do we do with Jesus? Will we oppose him and be conquered by him when he comes again? Or will we surrender to him and joyfully share the mercy we've received with everyone around us? Crying out with the kids, Hosanna to the son of David. You pray with me? Jesus, you are God most high. Jesus, you astound us with the revelation of who you are. You are power, and yet you are weak in humility. You are just, and yet you are full of mercy and forgiveness to all who come to you. Jesus, I pray that you would comfort us this morning, that we would run to you, or that we would take stock of our own lives and remember your goodness to us and Determined to follow you in love in response to your first love for us. Father, for those that aren't yet followers of Jesus in this room, I just pray that you would powerfully work in their hearts 
to lead them in repentance, in rejoicing, in celebration that you are the King of Kings, that you bring a life that, that we all want and that none of us seems to be able to grasp by ourselves. Jesus, would you rule us and show us the greatness of your glory, the wonder of your life. It's in your name we pray. Amen.